so you set your intention to be aware of the inside of your body, your feelings, and the outside at the same time. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Life podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. What stops you from practicing more at home? Typically, it's uh, time, space, money, low motivation, or maybe frustration with what exactly to do. How about solving all this with Yana Dance Club? Don't have time? Each practice drill is only 20 minutes long. It's a complete workout with a special focus on different technique element. And even if you do the suggested bare minimum, you still will see results and it won't take you more than 20 minutes per session. Have limited space? All drills are actually designed for practice in your home, so it's literally a no-brainer. Struggle with motivation and discipline? How about making your training fun with monthly challenges, cool bonuses, and support from a like-minded community of dancers? I promise you'll start looking forward to your practices very soon. Concerned about money? Did you know that the membership starts with only $8 per month? It's less than a regular group class in your local studio all the cost of two Starbucks coffees. But in this case, you actually invest those $8 in a whole month of your dance training. And finally, no more frustration on how exactly to approach your training at home and what to do. You can use those drills as a warm-up or to get into a groove before your longer individual sessions, or actually as a complete 20-minute ballet dance workout of the day. Simply follow the suggested plan for your weekly training and push your dance skills to the next level. You can find more information about Yana Dance Club at yanadanceclub.com and start your 7-day free trial today. Once again, visit yanadanceclub.com for more information and to start your weekly ballet dance training today. You are listening to the Baladance Life podcast, episode 110. And I should be very honest right away. I had really hard time trying to choose the title for this episode. It just were so many topics that we talked with Eva that uh, really caught my attention. And I'm absolutely sure they'll capture your attention too. And I was like, I don't even know how to call it. There is no like one just topic that can uh, in general describe the whole conversation. So I put kind of a couple, just a couple of kids notes <laughs> that we talked about but i'm very glad you tuned in because you definitely will enjoy this hour together with us let me introduce we have amazing guest eva chernik who uh, was introduced to the ballet dance at the age of 19 she previously before that had training in gymnastics and ballet uh, but she was introduced to ballet dance by the teacher anahit sohyan in new york and she had kind of funny story how uh, she uh, started her ballet dance training i'm pretty sure it will 
not remind, but kind of remind you a couple of other guests who had uh, familiar, funny um, confusions with their uh, dance classes in the beginning of their story. But Eva worked, she had such a rich and varied career, and she worked as an oriental dancer in London, Paris, Istanbul, Cairo, even in troupe, uh, as a part of troupe in Baghdad and Spain also. She also traveled in so many countries, Iran, Afghanistan, Syria, Morocco, and over 14 other countries. She returned to Egypt over 26 times and over that time she developed friendship with families in Upper Egypt, including Khaya Mazin, famous uh, family of dancers who we so much admire and she studied with them. Not only that, she organized tours and brought her students to study with them too. Also, Eva returned to Turkey 11 times and she's probably most known today uh, in uh, her specialty of Turkish style and Turkish Romani style but uh, also we dive deep today in this conversation in her Egyptian study too and she has so much more to offer and to share with dancers. She has so many uh, different awards, different achievements, uh, concerts, dozens and hundreds of concerts that she performed and she organized she also was presented by Denver Lyric Opera Guild in uh, 2008 in the performance of uh, uh, Dance of the Seven Veils from uh, famous opera Salome. And also Eva spent 14 years full immersed in Sufi dance practice. That uh, This topic we kind of left for a future interview, but still... Uh, uh, the the theme of uh, spiritual and your inner alignment together with your physical alignment and uh, visual presentation of your dance it goes throughout the whole uh, interview even in this conversation so it definitely has a probably touch from other dance practices that Eva does too and of course I also couldn't uh, uh, skip the topic of her interview with Samia Gamal and she shared the most memorable uh, moment of that conversation and that interview that I know you're dying to hear right away and probably it caught your attention in the title to this episode and yes I know you are uh, dying to finally hear the actual interview but I also want to share with you a funny story that last time uh, last week then I shared our previous episode 109 the moment I shared the moment I put it on the website I realized that I missed such an important event it was February 7 on that day it was our two-year anniversary of the podcast. And I was like, oh my God, how could I miss that fact? And I didn't tell anything about it. But it was exactly February 7th of 2018 when I put our very first episode with Marta Corzon. And I just want to take a, a second and to thank you, first of all, all our listeners who are with us, who were with us all these two years and whoever joined us along with these two years. I'm really grateful for you spending your time here with us and listening to these conversations and giving feedback and support and all your shares on social media that I see and all your uh, reviews, all your star ratings on the podcast apps. Uh, 
Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in on a regular basis. And I hope that future episodes will capture as much of your attention as the past ones. And also, I want to say a thank you to our uh, very first guests of the podcast, who were Marta Corzon, Julia Farid, Shahrizad, and Katerina Siham. Those uh, uh, ladies, I'm very honored to feature them as our first guest on the podcast, but I'm also super grateful for them to just uh, trust my <laughs> vision and trust uh, uh, what whatever I was getting them involved into. Because uh, at that time, at that moment, I didn't have anything to show. The, the podcast didn't even exist at the moment that we were recording those few first interviews and uh, I couldn't show oh this is example of the previous interview or these people were featured on the podcast before which of course those things make it way easier to get new guests or to show like the number of our listeners or the number of our reviews but at that moment I literally didn't have podcast anywhere to show so it was just an idea and um, podcasts are popular in some part of the world but for some part of the world like people don't even know like what is the format of this program so for some of the guests i literally had to explain what is the concept of the podcast uh, itself and i should be honest too i didn't know about two three years before i started my own podcast i had no idea about existence of podcasts and what it is at all too so it was a very fun beginning but i'm super grateful that those dancers supported me and they went for it and they trusted me and all those interviews were live for conversation so they also didn't know exactly what i was about to ask them and still they went for it and shared their time and their knowledge with us and also gave me a great motivation and push right in the beginning of that project and also i want to say a special thank you to jelena and her team and bda because uh, uh, maybe she wasn't the very first guest on our podcast but she definitely this her participation and her interview and feedback to the idea of this podcast she really gave me a lot of uh, motivation and that belief that the project is worth uh, going forward and investing time and energy in it and uh, i i just really grateful that uh, baladin's evolution supports our podcast almost from the very beginning almost these two years and their team and their project they do really great job and it's not for them only about uh, performances and creating shows or training dances but they also try to make difference in the community and do uh, some uh, contribution and serve uh, serve people serve dancers and uh, one of their programs uh, bd empower also serves the same uh, process and i'm pretty sure if you haven't heard about it it definitely worth taking a look and uh, just uh, been more worried about their amazing program so i'll just let you know quickly about their last programs and right after that we are diving into today's episode
Jelena's Beating Power is actively engaged in sharing the art of ballet dance with dancers of all ages, backgrounds and abilities. Through youth scholarship programs, weekly dance classes and engagement activities while on tour, Jelena and her team connect with at-risk young women and young dancers around the world. To learn more about the BDM Power project, visit BalladanceEvolution.com or follow hashtag BDM Power. Link in the show notes. Hello, dear Eva. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us. I feel it will be uh, such an interesting, uh, rich uh, conversation uh, with you today. (laughs) I'm sure it'll be for me too, because it's good to meet you, uh, Jana. And uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm so happy to be uh, able to have more people just hear what I have to say. I, I've been in this dance for over, oh my God, 30, 38 years. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> so it's good to share. Mm. Uh, I would actually love to start uh, from the very beginning. Uh, how did uh, belly dance, uh, dance entered your life? Do you remember your first uh, uh, the moment that you thought, oh, I want to learn this? <laughs> well, in fact, in the very beginning, that was 1972. Um, I thought I was in a folk dance class for Armenian folk dancing. Hmm. I had no idea it was belly dance until I started seeing costumes hanging in my teacher's you know, rack and uh, and the students were going to see shows here and there. And I'm like, mm, the only belly dancer I had seen up until that time was from, you know, the James Bond movies. And uh, those dancers were not the best example of, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, belly dancing. So uh, my introduction was, I thought I was taking of folk dance class because I had messed up my knee skiing and up till that point I'd been doing classical ballet and I thought I don't want to be in the back row of the chorus line I want to be prima ballerina Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and with a messed up knee I tore cartilage and um, lots of cartilage in my knee I thought I'm never going to be able to pursue this the way I want. So I said, okay, I'm going to do something that doesn't jump. But it turns out, you know, turns out belly dance does have some jumping, but you don't have to jump, you know. Uh, so not like in ballet. So I, I saw an amazing poster in the, I lived in Manhattan at the time and it was, kind of a mixed neighborhood of Greeks, Armenians, and Indian. And uh, I saw a poster, and what grabbed me, this was an Armenian um, grocery store with lots of weird-smelling spices. The poster, what grabbed me, is what actually, in the end, um, grabbed me into doing also Sufi work later. It was several pictures in a row of... um, a big, bright, a big, colorful skirt flying. The woman was spinning, and her long hair was flying. 
And it was one of those posters with several pictures in a row. And uh, it turned out it was Anahid Sofian who had opened a studio in Manhattan, not far from where I lived, like maybe 10 blocks from where I lived. And so I went to her, but I still didn't know it was belly dance, <laughs> mm. you know. And uh, so I went with it until I finally um, went to one of the nightclubs in kind of the forbidden area um, where my family was said I should never go <laughs> on the <laughs> west side of, uh, of town. But it was very mysterious, and uh, I took my boyfriend with me. And when we opened the door at the top of this dark, scary stairs, it was like opening, opening, um, you know, peeking into Aladdin's lamp or something. It was like bright lights and amazing music and people everywhere and mu musicians and dancers. Mm. And it was like, oh, my God, I just like want to be in there. <laughs> mm. And that's where I saw Anahid's teacher dancing, actually performing. Uh, one of her teachers, because she was mostly self-taught, but one of, you know, they used to just copy from each other in those days. They weren't even really teachers that much. And when when Anahid was studying the 60s, you know, and then I met her in the 70s. But, uh, and I even was learning a lot from musicians who played for me and from, you know how it is when you dance for, like Middle Eastern audience, uh, if it's a party, they jump up and they want to mm -hmm. teach you. <laughs> you know, I, I learned a lot of moves from dancing at these kind of parties. Uh, even if I wasn't performing, just with friends dancing. And uh, we learned a lot. And of course, musicians would say, well, let me show you how to do that right. <laughs> uh, it's funny mm. did you ever later in your training actually went to Armenian folk dance class <laughs> no never and it never even was Armenian I mean Anahi does beautiful Armenian folk dance but that wasn't what she was teaching at the time I just was mistaken because it was an Armenian grocery store and Anahi mm. is Armenian you know, so I I just was making an assumption. I was <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. just curious uh, to see. Um, it's funny how we sometimes discover a ballet dance thing and it's something else. We had quite a few uh, stories, uh, uh, not about Armenian folk dance, but also that uh, mm -hmm. uh, people who later basically dedicate their life to ballet dance, they for a while don't even uh, realize that they are doing ballet dance and studying ballet dance. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, fascinating. <laughs> uh, in your training, uh, you had uh, quite a mixture of styles right from the beginning. So you mm -hmm. had some Turkish style uh, that you were influenced already by some of your teachers. You traveled extensively to Egypt. You even traveled to Baghdad and you had some influence from and training from there. And you even performed with a uh, troop uh, in Baghdad. A Turkish troupe, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I worked there for seven months in Baghdad, but I worked for a year with the Turkish uh, troupe, and it wasn't a folk dance troupe. It was a, they called it uh, 
Zeki Erdogan's um, modern Turkish Oriental dance troupe. <laughs> and uh, we worked quite a bit in Spain, and then we went to Baghdad together. And so I learned a lot from him, the chief of the group, um, and hopefully he learned from me too. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he had a style that was modern at the time in Turkey, which was like in, well, I went in, the, in 83 with him, 1983, but the style was like what they were doing in Turkey um, in the late 70s uh, and, you know, and early 80s. It was, there was a lot of skirt flying, a lot, you know, the back panel of the skirt, using it like a big um, circular cut skirts in two panels and you'd use the panel of the skirt to fly it, add like, uh, you know, add uh, like an extension to your movements by flying the skirt. And there were a lot of jumps. And I must say Mm. it was really difficult because he choreographed everything for his bad knee, which was on the right side. And my bad knee was on the left side. (laughs) So I had, constantly had a swollen knee plus it was winter uh well a lot of the time it was winter in Baghdad and cold freezing in the dressing room and so my knee was like a bowling ball most of the time but um I wanted to be there and I just really wanted to do it and live through it (laughs) Yeah, I was actually curious to ask about uh, dancing with injured knee, especially that you are so uh, much active in Turkish style, which is active, mm-hmm. way more active even than the Egyptian style. I'm also curious uh, to ask, how did you navigate all those uh, endless, uh, countless shimmies <laughs> in your <laughs> dance life? Because I know for so many people, it's kind of, if they have any knee injuries, it's mm-hmm. uh, a little struggle and they even afraid to really uh, go with it did you uh, experience anything like that regarding shimmies and did you find any tricks or any additional I don't know training or whatever you do to sort of uh, uh, make mm-hmm. sure you can do shimmies nicely but at the same time safely for your knees well it wasn't the shimmies was the least of it mm. it was the floor work we did a lot of every show, not working with the Erdogan's bal- uh, Oriental dance, but in in the 70s, 80s, 90s, most of the dancers did a lot of floor work, not in Egypt, but in America and in, uh, in Spain and in Turkey. Uh, dancers, I mean, we were crawling around on our knees doing mm-hmm. backbends and all kinds... And um, not only that, but my original knee injury, um, it it became worse when I jumped off a chair one time thinking the doctor had fixed it, Mm. but all he did was remove cartilage, but he didn't fix it. You know, I was very naive, you know, kind of 19-year-old. No, I was 17 at the time, kind of stupid. And so I jumped off a chair and heard a big crack, and it was my cruciate ligament. But then for 14 years, that was undiagnosed. 
because in those days they didn't have the methods that to diagnose now. Um, so it wasn't until like I had this violin player at the time that he was also a medical doctor. And one day he said, I'm not going to play for you anymore until you get that fixed. Because I kept like I would just end up on the floor suddenly because it would give out. And in my mind, since it wasn't diagnosed as a torn cruciate ligament, I thought, oh, everybody that had their cartilage removed, everybody has this problem. Oh, this is normal for people with bad knees. But it wasn't. And mm. it, it was really too bad because there was so much damage done by the time in 1985 I had it fixed. To this day, I'm undoing the damage. And so to your question, um, what I did basically was favorite, which was a big mistake. I don't recommend anybody to favor a, an injury. Okay, in the very beginning, okay, favor it until it heals. But if it doesn't heal and you keep on using it, and you keep on favoring it, you'll find that your body becomes so much stronger on one side than the other. I mean, I was using my right side and hardly using my left side. I was faking everything and nobody could tell uh -huh. because I was such a good fake. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but in, in 2009, like 10 years ago, I saw my back in one of those mirrors where you don't have to twist. You you know, there are like two mirrors and you could see your, your back. And I saw that one side of my back was so well developed and the other side not. And the butt cheeks, one side very muscular and the other side floppy. And I'm like, oh my God, I never noticed. And from that day for 10 years, I've been trying to not favor the left side and it's still I still have not been able to um, undo all that unevenness in in the way I use the body I mean when I did floor work everybody else was down on two knees and I was always on my right knee with my left leg sort of kind of flopped out to the side and people thought that was very artistic, <laughs> but it was, I couldn't bend that knee the way I could the right one. But with belly dance, and that kind of brings me to that um, idea I wanted to talk about, about improvisation, because, you know, when I was with the troupe, the Turkish troupe, I had to do his choreography, and it was really tough for my body. But when I danced as a soloist, and in fact, when we had mostly in those days live music, it was all improvised dance. We couldn't choreograph unless you had an orchestra like in Egypt where you could have rehearsals. Um, you know, when you danced in a nightclub with musicians, you had to improvise. And so that actually allowed me to um, do only what was what my body could do with my injury. But I recommend for people that have injuries, when they're on stage or improvising or doing whatever, do what's 
easy for your body. But when you're at home or in the studio practicing, do what's difficult for your injury, but do it like smaller and gentler to to build it up, you know, to build the strength. Because, yeah, it just gets um, worse and worse if you don't. Uh, if you don't work on it in the very minute kind of, you know, doing everything in the practice room in slow motion and being very aware of how you're placing your foot and where is your weight on the inside of the foot or the outside of the look on the bottoms of your shoes or your house slippers that you wear all the time and see how they're wearing out to see if they're wearing out unevenly. And then make the adjustments. Um, I've been taking pictures of the bottoms of my shoes for years, and I want to like <laughs> compare them eventually. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the story. That's a, <laughs> that's a great reminder for dancers to always be in tune with your body and never not pay enough attention to injuries. By the way, have you ever noticed the fact that we, when we, uh, I don't know, injured or sick, we uh, mm-hmm. often try uh, tend to overdo exactly on the side of injury or sickness? <laughs> I don't know. Like in my experience, I mm-hmm. uh, luckily didn't have any serious injuries, but sometimes there are some small, like, oh, my knee hurts today, or like, oh, back, or I'm in general sick. And exactly on those days, I will always find myself in in a a situation out of ordinary then it's like oh i'm i just got on the elevated stage and i'm jumping now off uh, or like going the back band (laughs) uh, at the end of the show exactly today i decided and it would feel in the moment Uh, so mm -hmm. like natural like of course i had to do it it was like the greatest mood ever the audience the music everything else but it's like Mm -hmm. why exactly i don't know if you ever had uh, those uh, uh like moments especially like having like knee injury that it's kind of like uh, uh, you almost ask to go to the edge of like almost abusing your injury even more yeah well um, I think the way I've done of course done that but because when you're dance when you're performing everything you want you put everything as priority um, which is going to make the dance beautiful on the, you know, the outside. But I've learned through the years, um, you have to set your intention before you dance, before you go on stage, that you're going to, and you have to keep your intention that's difficult. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, um, they call it um, mindful, you know, I hate to sound kind of cliche, but mindful movement. Um, so you set your intention to be aware of the inside of your body, your feelings, and the outside at the same time. So you are uh, fulfilling the needs of your spiritual self and your body, and at the same time, you're creating something beautiful and fulfilling the expectations or needs or wants of the audience. Um, But that has to be simultaneous. And that is 
it takes training to do that. And it's not a physical training. It's a mental exercise that, you know, which is really uh, good to practice that when you have like um, one of these nice, uh, like a nightclub job or a restaurant job that you do every week or every, you know, twice a week or whatever, because it's very safe. Uh, environment. It's not like a big stage performance. So you can, I, I remember working almost every night and, and setting my intention. And some they were different intentions each night. And, you know, I would sometimes have two or three intentions and consciously deciding what I'm going to work on that night or for that performance, mm. you know, and you you um it's a spiritual exercise which i think every dancer needs to to practice that if she doesn't want to injure herself or doesn't or if she just wants to love the dance um for what's happening to herself too not just for the entertainment of other people that's another great reminder <laughs> too uh, and adding that element to performance because we are so often focused on like technique or music or like oh my god I missed that doom attack and uh, what uh, how my costume uh, looks that's the least of it <laughs> yes 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 uh well, coming back to your uh, dance uh, activity, you are very known for uh, being involved and active in Turkish style, but uh, maybe not everyone knows that you actually had very extensive training and experience in Egyptian style. And mm -hmm. I first would like to ask you, do you actually, for yourself, do you divide like oh, Egyptian style of ballet dance and Turkish style of ballet dance? Because some people say, no, it's... Uh, it's all ballet dance, it's just like little nuances, there is no division really, and some people do divide, no, it's, there is a such mm -hmm. thing as Turkish style and Egyptian style. So, in your opinion, uh, is there a such thing as such division? <laughs> well, there was more before they invented YouTube, <laughs> mm -hmm. and before they invented satellite TV. You know, now, um, ever since, you know, especially, you know, satellite TV, the dancers in Egypt were watching videos of dancers in Lebanon or Turkey and the Turkish dancers were watching videos of Egyptian dancers. And it was, uh, they, you know how it is. Dancers just naturally see something different and they want to copy it or just borrow a move from this or that. And it became more and more mixed. And now the new style Turkish dancers uh, are very, much looking, uh, like for instance, Didem, looking very much uh, like modern Egyptian or modern, I don't know, like uh, international style, mm. I guess, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But what I call the, the big differences from e Egyptian from Turkish style is more like the, the style from like the 80s and the 90s or before when it wasn't so mixed and um, the the way I perform the different styles is simply when I have Turkish music I dance Turkish style 
And when I have Egyptian music, I dance Egyptian style. I never tried doing like Turkish style to Egyptian music, which is what I saw in the nightclubs like in the late 90s and 2000s in Istanbul. A lot of the dancers were using Egyptian music because they thought it was exotic and fun and different. And so they were doing like what they were used to doing, but they did it to the Egyptian music and it came out looking, it still came out looking Turkish, but but then through the years, it became more and more like, um, you know, similar to, and, and the Egyptian style changed as well. So they started to kind of converge quite a bit. But the big differences is from, you know, what I call classical Egyptian and classical Turkish. You know, the Turkish was extremely acrobatic and very energetic. And the big difference I noticed is kind of like, you know how when you watch a flamenco dancer, the energy goes entirely through her body all the way to the fingertips that was the kind of you know there was like a current of energy and the turkish dancers had that current in their entire body whereas the i mean including the face you know doing incredible things with their face and the egyptian dancers were very focused on the trunk of the body that's where the energy was and the arms and the legs and mostly the arms and face and were complementary to what the trunk of the body does. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a very different focus and comes out looking very different. And, and um, the Turkish dance moves extremely exaggerated, like you know, the undulation or body wave that you, you know, we all call um, body wave or undulation. For the Turkish dancer, it starts really at the bottom of her neck, like the top of the, the very top of the body, whereas the Egyptian undulation starts pretty much like below um, the center of the chest, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like a, a very big difference when you look at it. Do you know what I mean when yes, you're visualizing that? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the movement on the stage, uh, traveling around the stage, the Turkish style, the older Turkish style, moves around the stage quite a bit, whereas the Egyptian style uh, is often very localized, uh, you know, in one pl- in a, a small area on the stage, and then of course she moves around, but not as much, and not as fast <laughs> as the Turkish style. That's interesting to uh, sort of compare and do a station through the center of focus in our body, because uh, uh, we hear quite uh, quite a lot that oh, Turkish style is more energetic, it's bigger movements, but to actually put it in terms like where the energy goes through, that's mm-hmm. a, that's an mm-hmm. interesting perspective, and it it makes it so much sense uh, through it because if your energy flows like this, of course your movements will be different. Uh, in one style or another style 
and when I before I went to Egypt the first time, when I danced for Arab students at a nightclub here in Denver, oh, almost every night, one of them would say, oh, you have to come to Egypt. You have to see how the Egyptians do it. You have to see my grandmother dance. Or they say, you move too much. You're too fast. And I'd say, uh, okay, I'll go to Egypt. <laughs> so I went, you know, and then I saw what they meant because I was like, I was like moving faster than, I mean, that was the time when Suher Zeki was working, Negwa Fouad was working, and it was like, oh my God, it's there, they're totally in their, in their torso, and I was like flying around all, all mm. over the stage, um, and I did work in Egypt, and of course, I was a novelty because you know, they never saw anything crazy like me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, but now I do, I don't do that anymore when I do, you know, I was learning then, you know, now I hear Egyptian music and I, I change my focus. And, uh, you know, and of course that has to do also with doing spiritual work, being able to change your you know, actively change your focus from one part of your body to another, it, it takes, you know, I, I recommend, um, first of all, yoga uh, to people. I haven't even done a lot of yoga myself, but I see how it affects dancers, how they're able to um, um, be like make friends with different parts of their body. Mm, that's interesting. Uh -huh. You know, and I did a lot of Sufi work and it was unusual Sufi work, like non-traditional where we did a lot of dancing and m almost all of it was to classical Egyptian music. And that's where I really uh, learned even the music, what it tells you to do. Um, is not what Turkish music tells you to do because the compositions are, you know, the whole Turkish um, temperament is different from the Egyptian temperament, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, but that's uh, those differences, and I'm sadly, in my mind, sadly, are like disappearing. But, you know, other things happen and I'm, you know, I'm all for evolution in dance and, uh, you know, as long as we could preserve some of it and not fight with each other about, oh, you know, I'm the pure style and you're the fusion style and, you know, as long as we recognize the value in each other's uh, styles, um, you know, some people like to preserve the classical style and some people like to uh, do new styles and some people kind of travel in both worlds, which is hard to do, but... <laughs> um. Yeah, so true. 
Talking about uh, preserving dance and uh, part of dance history, uh, during your multiple uh, trips to Egypt, you actually developed a friendship with uh, famous uh, Kariya Mazim, uh, Mazin family. And, uh, Kariya, yeah, Kariya yes. Mazin. Uh-huh. Uh, can you please tell about uh, that uh, part of your dance uh, journey? Because it's another fascinating topic and uh, uh, the dance mm-hmm. style is uh, one of those that uh, it's... Um, becomes more and more difficult to learn uh, the uh, the true uh, essence of of this uh, style mm-hmm. well Kyria uh, herself she calls her style belody belody style mm. she doesn't like to be called oriental and that's not what she does although they have some roots you know in common But she calls it Belody, and she um, she does it in a certain way that I would call it, like, I would categorize it as folkloric, you know, folkloric dance, but I'm not sure how, you know, uh, an academic would um, call it, if they would classify it as folkloric, um, but that's what I... You know, when I'm doing it, I say, okay, I'm going to do a folkloric dance of Upper Egypt or or of the Gawazi of Egypt, and I say it's folkloric. And the way that I learned, I learned from her and also from um, her sister Suad when she was alive, um, I used to take people, dancers, small, very small groups like I never had a bigger group than like 20, and most of them were between or around 12 people. And I would take them to Egypt specifically to learn Oriental dance and learn the um, uh, the Gawazi style or mm-hmm. Belady style in Upper Egypt. I would take them there, and there was a mulid. Um, in the west bank of the Nile from Luxor in a village, which is now, I guess, a city, my God, but it was a village back then called El Kurna, which is where the Valley of the Queens, it's near the Valley of the Queens. Um, so I would take them there specifically to learn from Hyria and from, we had a class with Suad, Uh, Mazin and one with Khairiya later on and, and even Raja Mazin. I don't think Raja is dancing anymore. And some other Ghazias from Kenna, but they were not, I didn't think they were as, you know, uh, good dancers like the Mazins were. Um, and we, I arranged parties for the village and so that my group could You know, I mean, I made a party for my group and invited mm. the village, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, we had 200 people in this, you know, in a clearing, all of them Saidi uh, farmers and tourist workers. And 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 um, and then there was us, <laughs> uh, my little tourist group. And, um, you know, I hired um, Mismar Ensemble. 
or Rababa Ensemble, and um, we would dance and dance. And the way we learned, too, was from copying what the locals were doing. We would copy them doing their... In the daytime, they did Tahtib at the festival, and then in the evening, they did, uh, you know, Raksasaya, which is like an imitation of the Tahtib. And sometimes we'd be with the women inside the house and we would dance around with them. And sometimes, rarely, an occasional uh, woman would dare to, uh, usually a widow, um, an older widow would dare to come and dance with us outside, you know, in front of 200 men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and... Then when then we take the train or we take a felucca overnight or to um, Aswan and learn from some like uh, Nubian dancing. And in Cairo, we learned from various teachers that I arranged at the time. Um, different teachers that. Uh, I'd have to go in advance and arrange it all with, the, you know, in, in advance. And then my tour would come and, and uh, I'd have everything ready. Hmm. How difficult or maybe how easy uh, was it to arrange logistics for the tour uh, learning Gawazi uh, style, dance style? Uh, because as far as I know, even... Um, even the last name Azin in Egypt, uh, the, this family name, it, it can uh, meet some resistance uh, from like local Egyptians uh, in terms of popularization hmm. of this name. And I know the stories that Karia uh, uh, wasn't allowed to enter some hotels uh, for the group of students to give them classes, so she had to hide... Uh, uh, the organizers had to hide who exactly they invite into the classroom with them. And uh, I know a person that she had a story, I think it was 2012 mm -hmm. already, um, there was uh, Yasmina Ramsey was organizing a big festival, International Conference mm -hmm. of Canada, and uh, she was she wanted to to invite uh, invite her, so she mm -hmm. received a visa from Canadian embassy allowing her to enter Canada but in Egypt mm -hmm. in local embassy they delayed returning her passport so she actually uh, would miss her flight so there was as far as I know purpose, at least they did that on purpose yes and it was a big scandal and even Canadian embassy was included in terms like from Canada I mean trying to figure out mm -hmm. what is going on why like she has visa why why she's not given her passport back on time but mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. in order to prevent her to go outside of Egypt to spread awareness of this dance because it's uh, mm. by many I mean many or not it's relative of course but at least for some Egyptians it's not something that is worth uh, uh, to represent Egypt for the world stage so I'm asking now about mm -hmm. your experience <laughs> did you had any issues like that organizing those tours well um, it was never easy I'll tell you that <laughs> just because nothing's easy in Egypt but even even with money, it's not always easy. But my the experience that sort of broke my uh, spirit about doing tours, uh, dance tours to Egypt, was the la 
the last um, tour that I did, which included, uh, you know, studying with with Chayria in in Luxor, mm-hmm. I forget what year that was, but it was probably the late '90s, like '99 or '98, something like that, um, where I arranged for a party. And I had, um, you know, I arranged with Chayria, and I, I'm not sure if she was with Raja at the time. It might have been just Chayria. So I arranged, I already arranged it with her. I arranged it with the village and where we were going to do it. And I had everything set, and they said, oh, but you have to go get the permission at the police station. And um, so I went to the police station to get a permit. Um, and they said, oh, before we give you the permit, you have to go to this other agency, which was more like, I think they call it Adab, like the uh, morals police. Mm-hmm. And the morals police, they wouldn't issue me a permit for this party because they said, um, especially because I had Mizmar musicians too. They said, oh, if you, if you play the Mizmar, it makes people drunk. Even if they're not drinking, they're going to get drunk uh, just on the sound of Aww. the Mizmar. And they're going to do crazy things. They're going to fight. And if you have a dancer, it's going to be even worse. And they didn't give me the permit. And I was so pissed off because... You know, the whole village was like, yeah, another party. Uh, and so we ended up doing it, but we did it inside a house. Um, and the villagers, you know, nobody was going to tell on me uh, to the police, but we told the police, okay, we're not going to do it. And then we did it anyway, but we did it hidden. We did it in a small house and, you know, it was really difficult and uh I think we, I forget, you know, there were several times when I did this and each year was a little different, but progressively each year became more difficult uh, because the whole society was getting more and more conservative. More women were wearing hijabs, even some young women around that time, some young women started wearing hijab by choice because they were thinking it was more like I'm being liberated. I'm making my own decision. This was like young women in early college or high school. And they Mm. would say, I'm making, you know, girls that I knew that wore makeup and all this before they suddenly started wearing hijab, like, Oh, I want, I want to my Egyptian identity, uh, you know, they they thought it was more like they were being more Egyptian or something. Mm. And it was at that time when I just stopped doing these parties because it was more and more difficult to hire them. And then Khairiya, luckily, when Ratya Hassan started doing the, you know, Ahlan Wasahlan festivals, then she hired Khairiya to uh you know, to teach. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness, Khairiya finally started having an income again. But for years, she wasn't 
able to make money very much because all her gigs were like, you know, forbidden on a lot of these cruise. She used to dance on cruise ships and she used to, we, we often had her in like a hotel, you know, like a, a small hotel, mm-hmm. but like a salon or something. And, and, um, but then we did go to her house and we had a class with, uh, with her in her house, a very small room, and there were like, there were like, well, twelve of us, and then there were like all the neighbors were squeezed in because they wanted to watch, and more neighbors, kids peeking through the windows, <sighs> and she was teaching us, you know, the asaya, and it was like she's swinging it around, and of course, some kid would get hit with it because. There was just no room, but we learned, you know, and I, <laughs> um, it, we, we learned more than we ever imagined we'd learn because you also learn about the context of the dance. You learn about, you know, the society and what the people think about it and what the women think about it and what the men think about it. And it's very different. Um, so you, by going there and learning from Khairiya, even even if it's difficult, um, I would keep trying because you learn like you learn where it fits into the bigger picture mm. of the culture, you know, because you can't so many dancers these days they say, Oh, I'm gonna do a cane dance and it doesn't it's not clear in their minds how it like, why would you even dance with a cane? They just, you know, and the reason is because if whatever you have is you dance with it. If you, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's crazy to think how things change little, like in what, uh, 30, 40 years uh, uh, in general in the history mm-hmm. of our, our community and specifically dance. Uh, Right, so I I would say, you know, Khairiya, maybe she she does travel, doesn't she anymore? I'm Is not she sure able about to that. travel? I I really don't know. I just remember that festival mm-hmm. because to the last one. minute, uh, people were all hoping for her and expecting, and uh, even yeah. organizers, okay, it's done. She has visa. Like it's just yeah. a matter of picking up the passport and going, and they did not let her. And that was. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that happened also. Remember when there was the uh, attempted coup in July of in Turkey of uh, a couple years ago, was it? Mm. And there was a festival in Minneapolis, and they weren't sure if uh, you know the dancers that they invited were going to be able, like Rehan Tusus, mm-hmm. uh, who teaches Romani style, and she is Roman herself. Um, they had like a couple of us on hold, like in case she doesn't get her visa or uh, that we could come and teach, you know, and I think in the end, I think she did even eventually was able to come. And then, you know, and then that whole thing um, kind of blew over. But and and so she's been to the States uh, several times since. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but it's it's very common thing, like not knowing if the artist will get receive a visa because it's really like uh, like not under our direct control, and it's uh, however they decide whom to give and not to give. But it's even uh, like uh, worse to know that actual artist was given visa, valid mm-hmm, visa to mm-hmm. to go, and it's someone inside the country who did not want to let her go out. That was quite uh, quite a story on my mind. Uh, well, there was also. So, uh, sorry, but mm-hmm. um, while I was still in Turkey, uh, you know, they when Erdogan uh, suddenly decided that belly dance was not part of Turkish culture, and so for a while they weren't allowed to uh, include belly dance like in real uh, Turkish touristic shows. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was supposed to represent the culture. And it was like, now, wait a minute, you know, because he is very conservative, uh, very religious. And he said, well, belly dancing is Arabic. It's not Turkish. And so we're not going to. But then, you know, that kind of blew over, too, because um, eventually people just do what they want. I mean, if it's within the country, you know, it's different when uh, going out of the country. But yeah, like probably Egyptian person that was had the power to stop that visa just didn't want that to be like represent. Maybe they were a very religious person, you know, maybe they didn't want that to represent their culture. Who knows? Whatever. It it will stay the history right now. (laughs) Um, Well, before we kind of move geographically to Turkey and uh, to your Turkish dance activities, I just cannot skip uh, this this moment still with a little bit of Egyptian, (laughs) let's say, chapter (laughs) history. As far as I know, you have interviewed Samia Gamal. Is that correct? Yes, but I never published it. It was, I don't know if you know her, Shems, um, Lisa, I don't know if she'd want me to say her last name, but uh, she worked as Shems in Egypt. So me and Shems together went to Samia Gamal's apartment in Zamalek, which is where we were living in Zamalek as well. Um, and we said, we want to interview you. And, and she welcomed us. And she was so sweet and such a wonderful woman. This is after she retired, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, I never rewrote. You know, I wrote the interview in notes. and But then I never actually wrote an article with the interview because... Um, I don't know, I got busy with other things and it was a big project to do. Uh, So I still have it somewhere here in a drawer. But I must say one key thing that I remember her telling me that I'll never forget is that she, um, I don't know if she said she actually went, I don't think she went to jail, but they wanted to take her to jail for Mm -hmm. saying that she... Um, when she's dancing, she feels like she's praying. Uh... You know, to her, dancing was the same effect as praying. And to a religious, uh, you know, uh, very religious person, or even not even too religious, but 
would be like, that's blasphemy. And that's, but she said, no, this is exactly what she feels because it's like a meditation. It's a spiritual thing for her. And uh, that's what most impressed me about her entire, um, you know, everything she said. And uh, I felt like it was, you know, um, it confirmed what I felt all along about, you know, about dance. So anyway, yeah, I should probably dig it out and write it up and see if it's still valid (laughs) oh absolutely i'm absolutely sure everyone like first of all already the line uh, that you shared is already like (laughs) worth the whole treasure uh to yeah i can only imagine like having experience of talking uh, live to samia gamal and uh, listening about her uh, life and dance experience it's uh, quite the and quite how a thing. humble she was very humble and respectful of us which is another thing that i thought was amazing because you know she was such a great famous woman and here we are these two american girls this was like 19 probably 88 or 86 or 88 something like in the late 80s and she was very like talking with us as if we were equals, you know. Um, I found that really amazing. Mm. And did I she... did visit with Negwa Fouad too in mm-hmm. her apartment, but I didn't interview her. <laughs> uh, I was trying to sell her something. Uh. <laughs> and she said, Oh, I already have those. <laughs> Uh, another kind of interview. <laughs> and uh, did Samia uh, spoke? Did Samia speak uh, English fluently, or you were oh, yeah, translator? Oh no, very well. She spoke oh, cool. very good English. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we didn't need a translator. Oh, well, I hope someday soon we'll actually see the interview. Now, now oh, you'll God, receive a I'm bunch of mess. Okay, all listeners who now want to want it uh, probably will message you like, when, when? <laughs> oh no. Now, uh, slightly moving <laughs> geographically to Turkey, mm-hmm. although I can, I kind of feel in Yodin's career, it was always like, a, not a mix, but all like both uh, uh, styles of dance uh, uh, and cultures went together hand in hand. But um, regarding like Turkish uh, style, you mentioned you were very active uh, right from the beginning and uh, in your training, in your performing, in a troupe. Mm -hmm. And also you were very active in uh, Turkish Romani style. Uh, The Romani style a little bit later in Mm -hmm. time because um, at the time that I started, uh, well, Anahid Sofian was teaching, um, she teaches various styles, but when I studied... uh, with her actually at that time it was more common to see turkish style in the nightclubs um where she performed as well mm-hmm. so i learned turkish style from her but she you know she also teaches awalam and you know egyptian style but um at the time mostly the dancers were doing 
they would call it Rom- they would call it gypsy style at that time. You know, we didn't even know that it wasn't uh, very kind to use the word. Um, and so we were doing it the way that Turkish, uh, kind of like what um, I was listening to Gigi Dilsha's interview, and she was kind of what she was describing what the typical Turkish person would do to a fast 9-8 is very hopping and very, uh, it's not really Romani style, but we all thought that was Romani style at the time. And people, you know, that's what American dancers learned, um, you know, and that, you know, the Roma play that when they feel like it, but mostly they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and the accenting is very different. And so I didn't really catch on to the accenting and until I went to, like in 1995, to Romani festivals in Turkey and studied with Roma. Uh, uh, you know, I also had dance tours to Turkey and had and invited um, dancers from Sulukule at the time. Sulukule still sort of existed, you know, uh, and they uh, would teach the real Romani style. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my God, I better call my original 9-8 choreography that I used to call Turkish Gypsy. I better change that to um, Turkish Oriental in 9-8. Mm-hmm. to label it correctly and then i started to you know make the adjustment because you you learn as you go and when you travel oh my god you learn you know so my focus was turkish uh a lot of the time because my temperament is also very lively and you know uh and very uh energetic and especially when i was younger Um, it was very hard to keep me down. (laughs) Um, I I have to tell you something that really illustrates the difference in the styles. It's how you hear the music, too, because when I worked with the Turkish troupe in in, uh, Baghdad, we were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing like crazy, and for a while I could not absolutely get Um, because I had just come from Egypt and I had been working in Egypt for a while and my brain was, my whole feeling was set on Egyptian uh, sort of interpretation of the music. And he had me coming out of a curtain on a certain beat, like of the music. And I had to like, uh, it was a closed curtain and I had to like, kind of come out quickly in the middle of the curtain just onto this platform and I always came out like half a beat behind and he was like ready to kill me but he said you're be we did it a thousand times and I always came out half a beat behind and he and then I realized through the years why that was I mean I eventually got it but I realized it was because he was listening to the music with a Turkish uh, feeling, with a, a in, 
interpretation. And the same music, you could listen to it with Egyptian ears, and it's like more laid back. It's slightly mm-hmm. behind the beat, whereas he was almost ahead of the beat, like so on top of the beat that when I came out just a little bit behind it, it just was like, uh, it didn't make sense to him. But it's because I had been in Egypt accustomed to the way they listen, you know, the way they respond to the music. Um, It's just a different temperament, you know. And it was actually Egyptian music that he was dancing to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a choreography. Well, another another cool, uh, fascinating example, and uh, I never thought about that in terms of uh, listening to the music in Turkish or Egyptian mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Uh, manners. Uh, but that makes mo- such so ma- uh, so much sense. I also know that people are a little bit lost among the terms Kashlama. Uh, mm. Turkish Romani, Hawazi, like what's all that stuff? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, and also like the skir- use of skirt in Turkish Romani, but that's kind of another topic. Let's focus first, maybe if you can help a little bit with the clarifying the term terminology itself. Is it the same? Is it different? What is what? <laughs> well, let me just say that, you know, in the early in the 60s and 70s here in America, and I'm not sure maybe in Europe, but not so much in Europe because it's closer to Egypt and Turkey and people could just go there for the weekend if they want. But in America, a lot of, um, there was a lot of misconception about Roman style and using skirts and this. And I know where those misconceptions how it originated but because so many dancers now they had teachers who were dancing at that time who taught them basically taught them what they thought was true but it wasn't Mm. and so it's like we're trying to undo some of that like where we went down the wrong way and we're trying to undo that damage uh like I told you, I renamed my choreography what I used to call Turkish Gypsy Dance. I had to change the name. I didn't want to throw out the choreography, so I I changed the name to Turkish Oriental in 9-8 time. Mm-hmm. Because um, when I went to Turkey, the Roma were wearing shalvar. You know, shalvar, the big baggy pants. Mm-hmm. And only now they're starting to wear like layered skirts and big skirts because some of those Roma are copying us, you know, copying what we expect them to wear, Uh, like what they see on YouTube or I don't know, or maybe they just like to change and start wearing big skirts now, but they did not wear big skirts like in in Russia, maybe you know, mm-hmm. Roman dancers did wear big skirts. Is that true? Oh yeah. Or yes. in and in your area, but in Turkey they didn't. They wore shalvar, big baggy pants. And so, what are you gonna do? Uh, flip your shalvar around? You can't. 
you can do that if you're doing a flamenco skirt or you're a Russian rom who, you know, uh, uses her skirt maybe, but not Turkish rom. And so I'm like, okay, where the heck did they get that idea that you fly the skirts around when you do nine, eight dance? And I figured out that because this, I told you the style, the Turkish style in the 70s, like 60s and 70s, the dancers wore big circle cut skirts that had pant, you know, it was a front panel and a back panel. And they would often tuck the back panel at each hip. And they wore two or three skirts at the same time. And they showed a lot of leg. But um, when I worked with the Turkish troupe, we flew, like we would take that back panel of the skirt out of the, you know, out of the hip mm -hmm. uh, belt, and we would fly it around, and it made such beautiful, um, you know, lines in space. And in fact, we often, our costumes with that troupe, the side of the skirt, like if you cut a circle, it was like more like an oval where the sides were extra long, like a foot longer than to the floor mm. because when it was tucked in while we were dancing but then when we would pull it out and hold it we would fly the skirt around and it would be like flowers just so beautiful mm -hmm. um and so of course the dancers like Ozel Turkbash who danced here in the 60s uh 70s she would fly her skirt all the dancers flew their skirts around and of course when they did nine eight at the end of their show a kind of like um like you would do a saidi cane dance at the end of maybe an egyptian show you know there would be like this little folkloric time well then they um still had these big skirts so they weren't flying the skirts because it was traditional Romani they were flying it because they were in a nightclub and they were wearing a big skirt <laughs> and it was the style at the time of belly dance it wasn't the style of Romani dance mm -hmm. and and in addition they didn't um, do all those gestures that you see these days they didn't do them because they knew that the audience wouldn't understand because they Maybe they did it at private Turkish parties, you know, but for an audience where there were Americans and also Arabs, you know, they would never understand these gestures. So they didn't really do them, um, you know, and and so the American dancers didn't learn. I mean, sorry, they actually um, it was done in some places where it was very Turk, like Turkish nightclub that then they did do it. And, uh, you know, the gestures, mm -hmm. but mostly in, in a general audience, it wasn't done. And I even noticed in Turkey that in the touristic nightclubs, a lot of times the Romani dancers who were also belly dancers, they kind of, they did the gestures, but they were sort of more subdued because they were either ashamed, like not these days, but like at the time in say the 90s or 2000s, 
um, they kind of, it was like more subdued because uh, maybe the audience won't understand, they won't have the same impact, uh, mm-hmm. or maybe they were even a little bit ashamed until Westerners started going there and asking them to teach them. Then they thought, oh, well, people really do like this. And they started doing it more. But also the accenting of the 9-8, a lot of musicians here in America didn't learn the Romani type of accenting because it was too difficult, maybe, or too, like, it was so foreign to, you know, we're used to clapping one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. And then to learn to clap in 9-8 was already difficult for a Westerner. And then on top of that, to learn to clap, but with the Romani accenting, where the accent, you'd put it on the five, and then the you know, a tuck, an accented tuck on the eight and not even play the nine, just leave that as a space. It was like a lot of musicians just couldn't, I mean, Western musicians trying to play Turkish music just couldn't grasp that. And so a lot of Turkish musicians, they only did that when they played for Turks, Mm -hmm. you know. And so we ended up not learning it until we went, you know, or if we, like Dahlia Carella, she did hang out with um, Farouk Tekbilek and his wife, and she learned, you know, if you're learning from Turks, then, you know, you learn it. But when we were just learning from each other, we, people just called it a karshlama, and they never even said it correctly. A lot of times it just drives me crazy when they, they write kashlimar, which a lot of people I even had to correct a dancer who who is like a almost a pretty famous dancer one time I won't say her name but she fixed it you know and she goes oh okay thanks Mm. (laughs) but Karshlama from what I learned in Turkey from uh, Dr. Serpil who was teaching dance at the university level she, and this might be too academic, but she said, Karshlama, it could be in any rhythm. It's just a regional, you know, regional dance and a regional rhythm. Uh, and it could be of any region. But, you know, there are people like that's maybe a, the academic definition, but the colloquial uh, understanding when they say Roman Karshlama means you know in the uh, it's the kind of in the style of roman uh roman dance um or roman culture um but so you you can't just say all karshlama is you know automatically nine eight mm-hmm. you know or automatically roman style you have to like uh, specified that it's Roman Karshlama. Um, and then Gawazi, uh, I'm not really, you know, the expert on that really is Edwina Nearing, uh, who wrote articles for Habibi, and she was very close friends with Khairia. In fact, she introduced me uh, to Khairia originally. 
and she wrote the mystery of the Gawazi under a pen name. And her, I, I hope everyone reads it. It's in the archives of the of Habibi. Uh, it's on the online archives, the mystery of the Gawazi. And um, the term Razia was like a dancer, but from that, um, I guess it wasn't a tribe called Gawazi, it, but they were from tribes that were, uh, that came from outside of Egypt. Mm-hmm. In fact, one Razia told me one time from Kenna, she said, I am Nawar and meaning an outsider of herself. And then she pointed at me and she said, you now are too, mm. meaning, so she meant it as being a foreigner to the country, even though like with the Mazin family, it had been 200 years or whatever, but they did come from outside. Uh, but I don't, but Gawazi, I don't know exactly. I think it just means performer or uh, dance dancer. I'm not entirely hmm. sure about that, you know. So yeah, but yeah. it's interesting to to hear about all these also confusions and maybe some of the dancers now recognize themselves too <laughs> in what you mm-hmm. what you describe because I, I remember that I just got uh, start my interest in Turkish Romani style. I remember, of course, uh, internet YouTube is one of our sources. We all know it's not reliable, but we all go there to research. <laughs> and I yeah. remember seeing at least half, if not more, uh, back back. Uh, back then and I was starting um, learning this dance form I was like mm-hmm. okay it's called uh, uh, it was popular to be called back then Turkish Gypsy and now mm-hmm. almost everything renamed to Turkish Romani but back then it was Turkish Gypsy and then you turn on video and it's like okay the music is not even Turkish Romani it's just 9-8 but it's nothing to do with Romani <laughs> yeah. and the dance is actually they're doing Russian uh, Romali dance with skirt because uh, uh, this yeah. community in Russia <laughs> they call themselves Romali which I guess super similar to Romani and oh, the really? people uh-huh. yeah and the people uh, I mean it's sort of uh, historically some like uh, historians would connect that it all came as a migration from India throughout the centuries and then it called get to like Domari, Lomari, and uh, well, they're different Ro- uh, people, but but the word, but from the Romani language, you know, the word Rom in their language means man or like a person, you know. So when they say Romalish in 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 uh, Russia, then it comes from the word from the Romani language. I'm I'm not sure about this. I just uh, really? from from uh, like knowing <laughs> this culture and seeing a lot uh, around and in the movies here, like a lot mm-hmm. of uh, Romali uh, people here, and they actually traditionally have these huge skirts, circle skirts, double circle skirts, and mm-hmm. uh, girls dance a lot with real in the skirts. So I was like, whenever I start researching about Turkish Romani style, I was like, okay, I see kind of Russian Romali style but to Turkish music which is not Romani but it's called Turkish Gypsy okay what's that <laughs> so it yeah, was interesting that's the uh-huh. that was yeah. happening before people knew 
you know, before people really did research and before we really went traveling and learned there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a problem because people think that because they learned that way from somebody with authority here in America, um, they think that it was correct. But, you know, the person with authority maybe even thinks differently now, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, the whole skirt dance thing now, I mean, I love skirt dancing, but that's what I call it. I call it skirt dancing. And you could do it to any music and call it, just call it what it is, fun with skirts. <laughs> mm. Just <laughs> keep know? in mind, I guess, a Turkish Romani style has uh, nothing to do with skirts. <laughs> they actually tuck them in. <laughs> I mean, now they may change it, add fancy stuff, but traditionally it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's really nothing to yeah. do with skirts. Uh, well, thank you so much for pointing out on those uh, uh, mis, uh, cons- uh, misunderstandings and confusions in dance styles. And uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are so many more uh, topics and subjects I would love to, to discuss, but the time flew by so quickly. <laughs> oh, my God. Have we been talking for two hours? <laughs> no, a little bit less, but it feels like, like there's so much things and topics that we touched on, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure the uh, brain of our listeners are just burning on fire right now with all this uh, flood of information and 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 things oh to think and rethink now so thank you so much uh, for uh, taking your time and uh, sharing a little bit of your uh, dance experience and giving a sneak peek <laughs> into your dance journey today uh, and uh, before I ask you our final traditional question of the podcast mm-hmm. um, I would like to ask also uh, where can people follow your activities and and find you and do you have any favorite social media maybe platform that you share uh, all news <laughs> uh, or any, uh, any other sources yeah Right now, my website is under reconstruction. Uh, For a while, it was nice, but then it died. Um, So, you know, after a few months, I may have a website again. But for now, uh, Facebook is probably the best place to follow me. And it's just my name, Eva Chernik, uh, spelled C-E-R-N-I-K. Um, and there are other Eva Cerniks, but if you find the one that, you know, my logo picture is like big red hair with a green costume, <laughs> you'll know it's me. And I'm in Denver, Colorado, so uh, they could find me like that. And um, and I don't, you know, accept uh you know, friend requests from everyone because I have like so many, but, but I usually try to, um, I mean, it's public, right? They could just look at my page, just follow, even if Mm -hmm. they're not friends. And, um, and, you know, when I have time, I look at people's uh, uh, profiles and then I accept the friends and stuff. But, and also I'm, I am as Eva, Cernic dance on Instagram and I have a few videos from when I you know there were some very old little snippets but it's just like 90 second snippets but 
it is you can see some things on Instagram, but I don't announce things there. If I'm gonna teach or whatever, I announce it on Facebook. Mm. You know, well, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not super uh, digitally, technologically. <laughs> Uh, savvy. <laughs> well, I'll make sure also to include the uh, links in the show notes, so all our listeners can just look there and uh, mm-hmm. find find you easily on social media and follow uh, your announcements on Facebook and uh, dance mm-hmm. activities and uh, snippets to your uh, dancing on on Facebook and Instagram too. <laughs> um, all right, that sounds good. Well, uh, thank you once again for uh, this beautiful conversation. And I would love to sum it up with our uh, traditional <laughs> question of the mm. podcast. Maybe you've heard it on some other interviews. Uh, but the question is, what makes you fall in love with ballet dance again and again? So you keep doing it for so many years. Um, I'm addicted to it. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, um, my body craves it. And if I don't dance for a few days, I just feel bad. I get depressed. It just affects my health. It affects my, my emotional being, my spiritual being. I have to dance at least every few days. And I miss it terribly if I don't. You know, that's why. (laughs) That's the best craving to have. (laughs) Yeah, better than, you know, ice cream or or men or, you know, whatever. (laughs) Uh, You can do it all by yourself with your eyes closed, dancing. And, you know, you could do it with music or without. And it's very healing for the for the body and the the emotion, and the soul. That's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us, and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.